Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 66, Pope Gregory I, also known as Gregory the Great! Ah, we've made it. We've actually made it to Gregory the Great. And strap in because this is going to be a long one. And we are not sorry. I'm a little sorry. Oh, don't be sorry. This is going to be so incredibly long that there is no way that we're going to cover everything. And so long that we have little time to chat at the top of the episode. But I want to mention a couple things real quick. So first, for anyone who argued with us over us marking Pope Felix III, episode 50, as kind of the first medieval pope, you can put down your hatchets, because by the time we reach Gregory, everyone agrees that we're medieval. Also, point two, as of this episode, we are officially one quarter away through our total current popes. Wow. We've made it 25% of the way in like a year and a half. Go us. And with that... Let's jump into it, because we have no more time. <laughs> no more time. Gregory was born Gregorius Anicius, likely sometime in the year 540. His parents were Gordianus, here's that family name again, and Sylvia, and his family was extremely wealthy and politically influential. His mother was from an esteemed aristocratic family, and his father was a Roman senator who at one point served as the prefect of Rome. He's also credited with holding some sort of position in the church called a regenarius, but we have almost no idea what that role would have meant at the time other than they were under the primary deacons and the subdeacons who were responsible for the seven diaconates of Rome. So he was somewhat important in the church. The family also owned a lot of property. Their main home was an expansive villa on the Caelian Hill, which is the extremely wealthy area that faced the palaces of the former Roman emperors. It's modern-day Via de San Gregorio, which is in between the Colosseum and the Circus Maximus, if, if you're going to go to Rome. And they also owned various estates in Sicily. Now, this is kind of interesting because in the villa on the Caelian Hill, Gregory would later commission fresco portraits of his parents, which got seen and were later described by John the Deacon, who wrote the descriptions down so we know what his parents looked like. We also know what Gregory looks like because of John the Deacon, but we're going to get to that in Facium Sanctus. Gordianus was tall with a long face, light eyes, and a beard, and Sylvia was also tall with a round face, blue eyes, and a cheerful look. First time we've ever had parents described to us. Nice. So besides being a wealthy and influential family, Gregory's family is also definitely a holy family, okay? 
his mother, Sylvia, her sister, Pateria, his two paternal aunts, Tarsilla and Emiliana, would all be recognized as saints after their lifetime. And his great-great-grandfather was Pope Felix III, also a saint. And he might have also been related to Pope Aegyptus, also a saint. This might be the holiest family in the history of medieval Christianity. So many saints. And of course, we all know that Gregory's going to be one too, so there you go. Because of his status, Gregory was well-educated and excelled in his studies in all of the standard topics that would make for an effective aristocrat and public official. Gregory of Tours tells us, quote, In grammar, dialectic, and rhetoric, he was second to none. He's just good at grammar? He's so good at grammar and oratory and teaching and communicating because, you know, that is a classical education. But it also became clear at this point that Gregory was all about introspection and contemplation and wasn't all that interested in worldly affairs. But, you know, with such an education and such a family status, his first career path, whether he liked it or not, was going to be straight into civic life around 570, and he would follow in his father's footsteps, serving as civic authority, until he reached the rank of Prefect of Rome. Ooh. And he was only 33 years old by the time that he became Prefect, which was pretty substantial because this is the highest civil authority inside of Rome and definitely was not a position for young men. So this is a big deal. He is, like, the chief police officer, give or take. Like, that, it is, it's a huge position. But he didn't like it. It wasn't satisfying for him. And in about 573 or early 574, after around a year of service in the position, he resigns from being the prefect of Rome so that he could leave behind the material world and become a monk. He is our first official monk pope. Uh, sorry, that's just, it's funny. <laughs> it's a funny phrase. <laughs> monk pope? Mm-hmm, like a monkfish. Uh, wow. So... <laughs> now I'm picturing that in a holy robe, and it's, yeah, that's a thing. I'm probably going to send you, like, 20 more gifts of Captain Holt, because he just sounds like Captain Holt at this point. He's so good at oratory and grammar. <laughs> well, let's see if you keep thinking that as we go. <laughs> I have not watched this show, so if it is on this line, I'm going to be incredibly impressed. So he is our first official monk pope. Um, we had Telesphorus in episode 10, who was an anchorite, but that was before monastic life was really a thing. And as we know from talking about Benedict and St. Benedict of Nursia, monastic life has now been founded and developed. And so Gregory was for sure, most definitely, and without question, a monk. And we're going to come back to that quite a fair bit. And a lot of things started to happen right around the time that Gregory was resigning and making this radical life change that probably influenced his decision. 
So the first and most obvious is that right around this time, his father died. And this was likely the catalyst for Gregory resigning as prefect because, you know, the old man ain't here. I don't have to do what he did. And then his mother decided that she was going to take holy vows and become a nun. And she decided to leave the entire family home to him. So now he's an extremely wealthy man and his mom has become a nun. And this was probably the final encouragement for Gregory because he could then renounce the civil administration and take up monastic life like his mom had. You know, I'll follow you, mom. It's great. Gregory had his family home on the Caelian Hill, this beautiful, wealthy palace, converted into a monastery dedicated to St. Andrew, as well as six of his family estates in Sicily. He turns them into monasteries as well. So he's just like, hey, I'm going to be a monk now. That's a monastery. That's a monastery. That's a monastery. And that's not even all of their property. They actually kept enough property to, like, sustain a decent income, which Gregory would just, as we'll see, continue to funnel into the church in time. The St. Andrew's Monastery that he founded still stands today after many restorations, but has been reconsecrated not as a monastery to St. Andrew, but of course, San Gregorio Magno Alcelio, which is, you know, St. Gregory the Great in heaven. <laughs> It is gorgeous. It is absolutely beautiful. And if you've been to Rome and you are listening, you have seen this building because it is gorge. Gorgeous or George? <laughs> <laughs> Both. It is Spider George, the building. It is a beautiful, beautiful church. And it's very prominent in the city. So it didn't probably look like that in his time, but that's what it looks like now. And so for Gregory... Living as a monk definitely proved to be his life's calling and suited him so well, like beyond well. And this period in his life is without a doubt characterized in his own writing as the happiest time of his life. Like he, he is committed to asceticism and contemplation wholly and zealously like like a fish to water. He enthusiastically gave up all of the trappings of wealth, and as Gregory of Tours tells us, quote, he sold the rest and all of the furniture of his house and distributed the money among the poor in the city, and he who had been used to arrayed in silken robes and glittering jewels was now clad in cheap garments, and he devoted himself to the service of the Lord's altar, and such was his abstinence in food, his sleeplessness in prayer, his determination in fasting, that his stomach was weakened. He could scarcely stand upright. Oh. As Gregory of Tours kind of hints at, unfortunately, Gregory took some of his vows a little too seriously. And he did fast so extensively while living at the monastery that he essentially destroyed his health and initiated what was going to turn into a lot of health problems that he was going to have for the rest of his life. So, like, super, super duper fasting led to indigestion, fever, chronic pain, and of all things, gout. 
gout from not eating despite gout from not eating wow because that's what you get when you eat a lot of like meat well if your body has to digest its own fat i suppose that would give you gout it's not a pleasant time and gregory for the rest of his life is going to deal with this because he just was so ready to starve for god um so that's not great (laughs) it's not great i feel like that's a bit too far over the line but he loves it fry you this gif you sent me of this man saying i've never been happier this is gregory with a deadpan face he would mean it in all sincerity he captain holt means everything with such sincerity he just talks in a very deadpan voice all the time i love a good deadpan that's why we've been such good friends this is a fetish that has gone too far it is a (laughs) fetish for god and he's loving it oh boy he's jizzing in his pants every second of every day (laughs) oh gosh yeah, he is, like, full-on dicks out for celibacy. He is full-on starving for God. He is all about this, and he is so happy. And this is how he lives for about three years. I mean, they fed him in between that time, right? I mean, he would eventually have to eat, but... <laughs> well, I mean, does he? Three years. It wasn't fun for him when he did eat, so, you know, after a while, the vicious cycle becomes more vicious, so. Gregory! (laughs) I know, right? Uh, I knew you would not appreciate him starving himself to the point of bad health. But even living a withdrawn life away from the world had not done a whole lot to keep his reputation as this charismatic and able leader quiet and people started to take notice of him and the work that he did in the monastery. And one of these people was the Pope, Pelagius II. He thought that this exemplary monk, who was all about what he was doing, was exactly what he was looking for in an assistant. And so, within a few years of becoming a monk, Gregory was essentially forced out of the monastery when Pope Pelagius ordained him as a deacon so that he could serve as the Pope's apocrysarius, which is that legate nuncio type of role. We covered this a bit last week, but this was due to the ongoing invasions of the Lombards into Italy and Pelagius' efforts to keep them from entering Rome with what little wealth they had to spare, which was next to nothing. He desperately needed intervention and military assistance from the emperor, and Pelagius felt that Gregory was the exact man for that job. His previous civil administrative experience made him politically gifted, his dedication to the church made him loyal to the pope, and his compelling personality might be able to sway the emperor to pay attention to the gravity of the situation in Rome. So Gregory and a delegation were sent to Constantinople on behalf of the Pope to try and get the emperor, who is now Tiberius II, and then Emperor Maurice, because that's short-lived. Maurice. Maurice, yes. The Pope wants him to convince the emperor, Tiberius, and then Maurice, to send 
military assistance to Rome. But, of course, the empire was preoccupied with their own military struggles with Persia and the Avars and the Slavs and, and everyone else, and the Lombard situation was essentially last on their priority list. There's no money, and there's no soldiers to spare, and the longer that Gregory stayed in Constantinople, the more obvious that became. But the Pope expected Gregory to remain in Constantinople, and to continue to petition the Emperor. And yet Gregory knew that if he continued to push and pester, there was a risk that he could end up alienating the Church from the Empire, or literally getting booted out of the city. So he needed to kind of find a way to be useful and bide his time without making himself a thorn in the emperor's side. So he decides he's going to play the politician, because he kind of knows how that goes, and if he can get to know the Byzantine elite and forge connections and relationships that could help him when the time came, if he actually did get the ear of the emperor... So he's like, I'm, I'm just gonna make my way, get to know all these people, and hopefully this will give me a little bit more influence. And according to historian Andrew Ekonomu, Gregory did this so well that he became very popular and influential with the upper crust, especially with aristocratic women. Oh. But not for that reason. <laughs> no, no, of course not. Sir starves himself for God. Yeah. Is not. Yeah, Gregory's extreme personal piety and that whole asceticism thing. Yeah, he was, he, there is a little bit about, at some point, um, Gregory writes about feeling the temptations of lust and that he, like, wished he could throw himself on thorn bushes to get rid of it because, oh, I'm so just dedicated to God. Why do I have these feelings? He is all about the celibacy. So it was like, his personal piety and his asceticism that made him just so inspirational to these women, basically. And he took on this sort of role of spiritual father for many of the major political players in the city. You know, everyone wanted to be in the presence of this supremely holy man. But this didn't really entirely prevent Gregory from getting embroiled in some controversy while he was in the city, as he ended up in a major theological dispute with the Bishop of Constantinople, Eutychius, on the palpability slash corporeality of the body. This is a thing that they're fighting about, and so this was based on a new treatise that Eutychius had published, which described the human body after the resurrection as, quote-unquote, more subtle than air. So, essentially, he believed that when the resurrection came, the body wouldn't be corporeal or physical anymore, right? You would be purely spiritual in the way that we would conceptualize spiritual. And Gregory took serious issue with this and argued vehemently and publicly against Eutychius's view by quoting the scripture of Luke 24, 39, which says, Touch me and look, a spirit has not flesh and bones as you see that I have. 
which clearly indicated that Christ had a physical, corporeal body when he appeared to the apostles after his resurrection. And so, they do not agree. And the debate between the two men gets so heated and so public that the emperor summons both men to an audience where he demands that they present their cases so that he could adjudicate the matter and it would be put to bed because it's making people uncomfortable. After hearing out both arguments, the emperor decided that Gregory was correct and ordered that Eutychius's new treatise should be burned. Yep, okay. Is that Gregory, you're right. I'm just going to burn your work in front of you, Eutychius. Bye. In front of him. <laughs> very shortly after this very public conflict, both Gregory and Eutychius fall ill. We're not sure with what they had exactly, or if they had the same thing, but they both get very, very, very sick. You know, maybe Gregory was back to starving himself again. Probably could have been. Or maybe he just didn't uh, recover from that gout. But he got very, very sick, bedridden, like, life-threatening levels of sick, and so did Eutychius. How long is this man Pope? He's not even Pope yet. He is not even Pope yet, and he has been knocking on death's door the entire time. <laughs> it's true, and he will continue to do so. But in this case, he only knocks. It's only Eutychius who goes through, because he gets better and Eutychius dies just after Easter in April of 582. And Gregory received word that upon his deathbed, Eutychius had recanted his position and, as Paul the Deacon puts it, he said, while touching his own hand, I confess that in this flesh I shall rise again. So, I was wrong, you were right, my body's gonna be solid like this when I come back. And apparently that was enough to satisfy Gregory, who dropped the argument at this point, you know, since your adversary's dead. Can't be petty against a dead man. I mean, you can, but... <laughs> well, he decides not to in this case. Funny, you should mention being petty against dead men. We'll get there. Gregory decides, okay, I'm going to drop this argument, and I'm not going to take it up with any other speculative theologians. But he would later cite this argument with Eutychius as one of the many, many reasons that he maintained a negative impression of Eastern theology for the rest of his life, because Gregory, a bit of a grudge holder. Which also has something to do with being petty to dead men. Well, he's got to hold on to something. He can't eat. He's got to do something. He's got to fill that void with something, man. He does. He's still in Constantinople. And it eventually becomes very evident that nothing is going to be accomplished by Gregory with the emperor. And so in 585, six years after being appointed Apocrisarius, Gregory was finally allowed to leave Constantinople and return to his monastery. So he is jazzed, okay? He is so excited to be back at St. Andrews. And now that he's back and he has all this extra prestige around him, he decides that he's going to be the abbot of St. Andrews. And it seems like during this time, he's, you know, happy monking it up, but he also kind of assists the Pope occasionally to act as a nuncio or a secretary. 
But he he's much more excited about the monastery, and he takes to running it with gusto. And he's so enthusiastic in his duties that the monastery grew famous for being an epicenter of piety and theological education. Like, he starts to now, on top of all of his other reputations, he earns a reputation for learned lectures on scripture and having a mastery of the Bible, and his commentaries and sermons would have a lasting legacy on medieval Christianity. Like, this is a man who spoke with the spiritual vigor of someone like Pope Leo I. And his commitment to monastic vows of poverty and contemplation are absolutely idolized in the city of Rome as the purest form of religious living. And it's during this time in his life that one of the most famous moments of Gregory's life occurred. And this is the meeting of the Angles. Okay, this is like a, a people and not like just a <laughs> corner on something. He didn't meet a bunch of obtuse. Yes. <laughs> Obtusi? Acutai? Yes, these are a people. And this story is recounted in the Whitby Vita, as well as the Venerable Bede's Ecclesiastical Histories. So the story goes that one day, Gregory is in the Roman Forum, and depending on the source, he either meets some young, fair, blonde-haired boys, or he sees these boys up as slaves for sale in the market. So he comes across them somehow. Either they're literally for sale, or they're just hanging out. That's two separate things. Two very separate things. Either these children are for sale, or they're just hanging out here. But they are fair, and they are blonde, and Gregory is interested. He is like, who are these people? They look so different to us, you know, Mediterraneans, basically. I do love that, like, the fair-haired blonde is the, the weird-looking one. He's like, I'm so swarthy, look at this weirdo. Well, and it's funny because he's described as being somewhat fair-haired himself. So it's it's a strange thing for him to be like, ooh, who are you people? So but like light-haired in like a reddish sort of brown way and not light-haired as in like a blonde. Yeah, these these boys are definitely blonde and and Gregory will be a tawny man. So you know that kind of sandy tawny ish. Yes. Yes. Gregory approaches these boys one way or another and he asks the boys where they came from. And he was told that they were from Britain. And he asked if their people were Christian or if they were still, quote-unquote, still involved in the errors of paganism. And they told him that they were pagans, which, of course, filled Gregory with a desire to convert them and their people. Now, are you ready for some real bad dad puns? Bryant's not here. He would... Love these dad puns. Okay? Okay. So, I I will remind you that these are the angles, okay? So, we go to Bede's account. Alas, what pity, said he, that the author of darkness should own men of such fair countenances, and that with such grace of outward form, 
their minds should be void of inward grace. He therefore again asked, What was the name of that nation? And was answered that they were called Angles. Right, said he, for they have an angelic face, and it is meet that they should be co-heirs with the angels in heaven. Oh, boy. <laughs> what is the name of the province from which they are brought? It was replied that they were the natives of the province called Dieri, which is southern Northumbria. Truly they are Diera, said he, saved from wrath and called to the mercy of Christ. How is the king of that called? And they told him his name was Aeola. And he, playing upon the name, said, Alleluia! Oh my god. <laughs> the praise of God, the creator, must be sung in these parts. There you go. <laughs> so these boys say, that they are angles, and he goes, oh no, that must be angels. And they say that their king is called Ayla, and he literally says, Ayla I hate it. I refuse. I knew you would. And though this was probably all very cringy for the angle boys, like, could you imagine how awkward this would have been for them? Especially if they were slaves. They're like, oh, God, what if this man tries to buy us and we have to go home with him? This meeting has a profound impact on Gregory because he is now deeply inspired to convert the pagan peoples of Britain. And he appeals to Pope Pelagius for permission to lead a missionary effort to the Angles as soon as possible. And he actually gets approval from this from Pelagius. And so Gregory, like, leaves instantly. He he grabs a small group of monks from the monastery, and he just goes, because he is like, I'm going to convert the angels, alleluia, let's go. But Gregory's departure doesn't go unnoticed by the people of Rome, who freak out. They just absolutely flip a table, because no one wants Gregory to leave the city, and they demand that the Pope recall him, because he is their, like, source of inspiration and piety. This says a lot about his reputation in the city, and will explain some things that we're going to get to soon. So the people are demanding that the Pope recall Gregory, and so Pelagius sends out messengers to recall him. And only about three days after Gregory and his team had departed, they're ordered to come back to Rome. And Gregory is so disappointed. He was so ready to go make a land of angels. He doesn't resist. He just, you know, he's just very, very disappointed. And he goes back to the monastery. But he never forgot his goal of converting the rest of Britain. And then Pope Pelagius II died in February 590. And Gregory, who was still living in his monastery, was elected by acclamation of the bishops. Now, a refresher, if you haven't listened to our previous episodes or you're just picking it up because it's Gregory the Great, acclamation is when the bishops unanimously consent to the election of a candidate without a vote. They all just go, Gregory should be Pope, and everyone goes, yep, that sounds good. So this makes Gregory only the second Pope in history to be elected this way with Fabian being first, episode 22. 
There's actually a lot of a lot of similarities between Fabian and Gregory as we go through. So, according to the majority of the sources, this acclamation wasn't divine inspiration like Fabian had been, but basically because as he was dying, Pelagius had strongly advised the bishops that Gregory would be the best choice. And they just all kind of went, yeah, yeah, that you're so right. Go ahead and die now. We will make him the next pope. But guess who was not happy about this? Um, uh, someone, I don't even know. Who else is around? Well, who wouldn't be happy about someone being elected by acclamation? Gregory. It's Gregory. <laughs> Gregory does not want to be pope. Like, no, he is like completely, utterly zero desire to be pope. And it's very ironic that today he's known as Gregory the Great and one of the most famous and notable popes in history. When, without a doubt, he is the most unwilling pope that we've ever had. He's a no-pope. Yeah, he is a no-pope 100%. He knows that a pope cannot be removed from worldly affairs, and he is not about that life. So, he writes immediately to Emperor Maurice, and he urges the emperor to refuse to confirm his election. Remember, you know, if the emperor didn't approve the candidate for pope there was no consecration so he's like maurice i don't want to be pope please 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 refuse me and in the interim he seems to have kind of put on a good show for everyone else you know because he really doesn't want to be pope but he doesn't let them all know that so he tries to conceal the fact that he's trying to undo his own election and while they're waiting for imperial confirmation, Gregory participated in helping administrate the church, and most notably, he led a quote-unquote penitential procession through the streets of Rome from all of the major churches in the seven ecclesiastical districts of the city. They basically all leave at the same time and have this procession of penitents to Santa Maria Maggiore. And this was for public displays of penance and prayer to the Virgin Mary to relieve them of the plague that had killed Pelagius and continued to ravage the city. The plague's still there. Yeah, the plague's still there. And he's like, no one needs to know that I'm trying to get the emperor to refuse me. So I got to kind of do the Pope thing for now. And he decides he's going to hold this big penitential procession. And maybe it will be dim and sad and, you know, no one will really want me as Pope. And then this is when a miracle happened. Miracles. It is said that during this procession, the Archangel Michael appeared on top of the mausoleum of Hadrian, and he's wiping away blood on his sword and sheathing his sword to signify to all the onlookers that the plague was coming to an end. The account of this comes from the travel chronicle of 15th century writer Pero Tarfour, who said, quote, As the Pope arrived in procession at the church and came to the idol, a noise like thunder burst from it, and it fell in pieces. The Pope, beholding this marvel, made his procession, and as he was returning very devoutly to St. Peter's by the bridge below the castle, an angel appeared in the sight of all, 
with a drawn sword in his hand, all bloody, which sword he cleansed on his mantle and placed in his sheath. This was held to be a sign that God was appeased and did not desire that more should die. In this manner was idolatry put down, and the castle from that day onwards was named the Castle of St. Angelo. It is so called this to this day, and the figure of an angel is set upon it. This is why the Mausoleum of Hadrian is today called Castel San Angelo. And it is known as Castel San Angelo, as a palace. Michael the Archangel came down. Appeared on top of it. And for Gregory. He did this for Gregory. Okay. And Castel San Angelo is a place that will become intimately entwined with papal history as we go. And the last time that I was at Castel San Angelo, there was a freaking crocodile in the Tiber River below. So we're like up and it's super hot and we're walking around Castel San Angelo and we see all these like police boats on the Tiber River and we're like, what is going on? Turns out, crocodile. It's a crocodile. Boy. I'm going to send you a picture of Castel San Angelo because- no, not of the crocodile. Unfortunately, I did not see it with my own eyes, but I will send you this. This is a mausoleum for an emperor, but it is, gets converted into a castle. And you can see the angel on top. That's Michael. I see them angels. And he came there for Gregory. Humanoid angel shapes, not spiral angel shapes. Eyeballs? Too many eyeballs? Too many <laughs> What? Uh, angels are, like, too many eyeballs. Isn't, isn't that what they are? No. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> um, sure, sure. Theologically correct. Yes, and theologically I am correct. Angels are too many eyeballs. Oh, okay, well. <laughs> okay, um, <laughs> we need to come back to this, because... This angel just looks like a dude with wings. Mm-hmm. He he does not have too many eyeballs, but I'm going to look into this. No, it's just too many eyeballs. It's not a dude with too many eyeballs. It's just too many eyeballs. <laughs> like when I okay. described Guerrero Rocher as being poorly made. Wings. I'm sorry, what did you say? How do you pronounce that? <laughs> Are you trying to say Ferrero Rocher? Yes. Can, can you tell me what that chocolate's called? Well, clearly it's Ferrero Rocher. I don't even know what you said, but I'm dying. That's a wafer scaffolding, and angels are too many eyes. After we went looking... We found scripture describing a subset of angel called the Ophanim from Ezekiel 10.12. Quote, And their whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had, were full of eyes all around. Honestly, there's so much more information, and we'll be doing a deeper dive on all the angel types in our Patreon feed in February. So, this non-too-many-eyeballed angel appears to Gregory in front of all these people 
and basically signals that the plague is coming to an end. So Gregory is clearly doing a good job putting on a convincing show and inspiring people, all the while waiting in hope that the emperor is going to refuse him as pope. Because he's got to do the thing. Uh, Yeah, that was very descriptive of me. (laughs) He's got to do the thing. But unfortunately for Gregory, the current prefect of the city, who is a man called Germanus, also thought that Gregory was the right choice for Pope. And so somehow he was able to intercept the letter that Gregory had sent and instead replaced it with an announcement of Gregory's election. Oh no! (laughs) So here's an account from Gregory of Tours. He says, He strove earnestly to avoid this high office for fear that a certain pride at attaining the honor might sweep him back into the worldly vanities he had rejected. And so he sent a letter to the Emperor Maurice, whose son he had taken to the holy font, adjuring him and entreating him with many prayers never to grant his consent to the people to raise him to this place of honor. But Germanus, prefect of Rome, forestalled the messenger and had him arrested and the letter destroyed, and himself sent to the emperor the choice which the people had made. So, Maurice is never going to get Gregory's letter, begging him not to make him pope. He's just going to get an announcement that all of the people of Rome want Gregory to be the next pope. And so, despite his best efforts, he was indeed approved by the emperor, And when approval arrived in Rome in September, Gregory was consecrated on September 3rd, 590. But not easily. Because he doesn't wanna. And when he realized that he'd been confirmed as Pope, he tries to run away. Where does he go? Again, we'll go to Gregory of Tours for a brief account. And when Gregory was making ready to go into a hiding place, He was seized and brought by force to the Church of the Blessed Apostle Peter, where he was there consecrated to the duties of bishop and made pope by the city. Our deacon did not leave until Gregory returned from the port to become bishop, and he saw his ordination with his own eyes. Oh my god. So they literally are forcing him to be pope. The Whitby Chronicle on the life of St. Gregory gives a slightly more fantastical account, which says that Gregory did successfully flee and ran away and tried to hide in the forest to avoid being consecrated. And he prevailed for three days in the woods before a divine light revealed his whereabouts to the people. So God betrayed him and showed the people where he was hiding. I do love that. That is the the best story. I love that one. Uh, I, I was trying to find a direct bit of that Whitby Chronicle Vita to to actually quote, but finding a source with that little bit in it in any translatable language is impossible. So, summary. Whether they blocked his escape efforts and essentially arrested him to make him attend his own consecration, or... God literally gave him up, Gregory was brought into the Lateran for consecration. Did they have to arrest him at that point, or did he go, okay, and just go? They had to forcibly bring him there. I'm so surprised. This is the man who starved himself. 
Yeah, yeah. And um, so he is weak, and they're like, hey, yep, you're coming. And now that he's actually in the Lateran and the consecration is happening, he reluctantly accepts, basically. I guess. Yeah, but he was extremely unhappy about it and and apparently didn't care much. Who knew it? Like, almost all of his writings in his first papal year complain about how how much he would rather be a monk and how little he wanted the role of caring for the whole of Christendom. Literally, like, one of the first things he did when he became pope was to publish a decree making it clear for every single person to see that he had no ambition to be Pope and that monks were the best, (laughs) y'all. So I have a letter that he wrote to the emperor expressing these feelings. He says, Under color of episcopacy, I have been brought back into the world in which I am involved in such great earthly cares as I do not at all remember having been subjected to even in a lay state of life. For I have lost the deep joys of my quiet and seem to have risen outwardly while inwardly in collapse. When I grieve to find myself banished far from the face of my maker, for I used to strive daily to win my way outside the world. And then a little later on, he discusses the responsibility awaiting him. He says, But to me, these things are difficult, since they are also exceedingly burdensome, and what the mind has not received willingly, it does not control fitly. Lo, our most serene lord, the emperor, has ordered an ape to be made a lion. And, indeed, in virtue of his order, it can be called a lion, but a lion it cannot be made. Wherefore, piety must needs himself take the blame of all my faults and shortcomings, having committed a ministry of power to a weak agent. So he is not a happy man. He considers himself an ape being made to be a lion. He wants none of this. But that conception of himself as, you know, a weak agent certainly wasn't what Gregory was to the rest of Christendom. Because despite how much he didn't want to be Pope, once he was Pope, he actually does commit himself to the papacy. And as Paul the Deacon says, quote, He never rested. He was always engaged in providing for the interests of his people or in writing some composition worthy of the church or in searching out the secrets of heaven by the grace of contemplation. I need him to take a nap and maybe feed himself. Yeah, he doesn't really do any better at those things. He still chose to live as a monk, and he even goes as far as to banish all of the lay attendants from the Lateran, charging all of the duties and services of the Lateran Palace to clerics instead to eliminate any type of luxury that might have been there from a previous pope. Wow. Just any luxury. Yep. He's just like, no, I am a monk. I am going to live my vow of asceticism. And if I have to do it in this palace, this place going to be bare. So nobody going to sweep the floor for me. (laughs) Exactly. He was still going to live that starving ascetic life. But before we get into how it looked for the Church of Rome or like his actual papacy, we need to look at the other role that he's going to play. Because much like Pope Leo, Gregory wasn't going to just be the Pope. 
He was going to have to be Pope, Prefect, Governor, and even Military General. Because, you know, when the civil authority is falling to pieces, they look to the Pope. And of course, the majority of the dysfunction happening in Italy comes back to the Lombards, who haven't in any way stopped their attempts to control the whole of Italy, and are maintaining their adherence still to the Arian faith. And just as Gregory had been consecrated Pope, the current king of the Lombards, a man called Autare, had recently died, and his wife Theodolinda had remarried to the Duke of Turin, a man called Agilulf, who succeeded as the next king. Terrible names. I told you you were going to love these Lombard names when we got I to them. I so. don't like them at all. And I don't think I've seen a single romance novel with a Lombard name in it. <laughs> you don't want a sexy romance with Agilulf. <laughs> I do not. <laughs> oh my god. That's not a romantic lead name? We'll see. We've got a couple more Lombard names to go through here, so we'll see if you feel any better about any of the rest of them. So far, none. None of these are good. I mean, I think there are, there's an argument to be made for Theodolinda. Theodolinda? Here's the thing. Romantic heroines are always allowed to have weird-ass manic pixie dream girl names, and I think Theodolinda falls under that category very well. Exactly. So... She was married to the old king, Altari, and now she is married to the Duke of Turin, Agilulf, who is going to be the new king. So things are shaky, as with any transition, and Rome still had no support or defense from the Empire, as the current exarch in Ravenna is doing basically nothing. And as we talked about during the period of the reign of the dukes, there is no entirely unified Lombard kingdom, really, and the dukes still sought to kind of conquer in their own right. So this was a particular concern for Rome in reference to two people, and this is Ariulf, the Duke of Spoleto, and Arrichus, the Duke of Benevento. Feel better about any of those names? No. So in the summer of 592, both of these dukes set their sights on Italian territory that had yet to come under Lombard control, and they wanted it for themselves. So, Ericus goes to Naples, and Ariolf goes straight to Rome. Now, both of these are of immediate concern for Gregory. Like, Naples at the time did not have a bishop who could act for the church, nor were there any civil officials to put together any type of garrison defense. So, because of this, Gregory takes an unprecedented step that no pope had ever done before. He actually appoints a tribune for Naples in his own authority, not in the secular authority, and commanded them to take control of the city and organize defenses to their best ability. And he does this in Epistle 234. And at this time, Gregory also has to become a military general, because now he has this new tribune in Naples, and he's sending instructions to the tribunes on what the heck to do to protect Naples, and he's planning strategies, and he's also funding the soldiers' efforts, because again, the Byzantine emperor and the exarch are doing nothing. 
and he's ransoming hostages, and he's bringing in refugees. So for this man who did not want this role and did not want to be part of worldly affairs, this is very full on. When it's like right there, you got a a little bit. And he does have to step up because you are right. It is right there. We've just talked about Naples so far. There is also a duke coming straight to his own gates. It is happening in his face. So dealing with that one who's coming right at him. Oh, Lord, he's coming. Oh, and he's coming. Ariolf is coming. That is very close to Ariola. Well, there you go. There's a romance pun you can make. Ugh. So Gregory figured, again, that if the Imperial authorities were going to stand idly by and offer no help, and since he was already in charge of the only armed defense that Rome had, that he could make a peace of his own with Ariel, Which he does. Which likely came at what we can imagine to be a very high price of wealth and goods, although the details have generally been lost. And so with this piece, Gregory saves the city from being sacked for the first time. Oh boy, he gets to do it more than once? He's gonna do it more than once. We only did it the one time. (laughs) I mean, he did it. Yeah, he did. He saved them from Attila the Hun, but then the Vandals came. So now, when word got back to the Exarch in Ravenna that the Pope had concluded some sort of private peace deal, he's not too happy, and for just a moment, it actually spurs him into some kind of action. So he decides, look, okay, the Pope is doing more than I am, that's unacceptable. So he takes his troops out to meet the Lombards, and in the process, he reclaims the city of Perugia, while he decides he's on his way to Rome to have a chat with the Pope. So, he's like, you know, Gregory and I are going to have a little talk if he thinks he can make private peace deals. And when he arrives in Rome, he was received warmly and with honors, despite the fact that the city is massively frustrated with him for being incompetent and not having acted. So the tension is eased for like a hot minute. and just for that little time that the Exarch is actually visiting the Pope, Rome actually has a garrison force to protect it, because the Exarch has now brought one. They will have that until the next spring, when the Exarch just decides to up and leave again with his troops. So for a little moment, they felt protected. They're like, great, the Exarch is here. He's doing his job. He was spurred on in a way that was maybe a little bit tense, but he's here. And then he just goes. Imagine Gregory's frustration. He just wants to live his monk life. Exactly. So this is going to be a point of just, oh God, what am I going to do now? It's not cool to not eat if everybody can't eat. Yeah. And then he finds out that the Lombards are now pissed because Gregory had secured a peace with them. And then the Exarch had showed up and aggressed against them and took back the city of Perugia. So now it's on. Gregory's just like, I am not in charge of that man. And this time, in the summer of 593, it wasn't a duke that is marching on Rome. It's King Agilulf himself. 
And this is where we are going to have another Leo the Great moment, because according to the continuator of Prosper, Gregory met with the king in person and convinced him not to sack the city and actually turn back. Quote, Agilulf being melted by Gregory's prayers and greatly moved by the wisdom and religious gravity of this great man, he broke up his siege of the city. So, Gregory thus prevented the city of Rome from being sacked a second time. He's got two under his belt. He's getting pretty good at these. Unfortunately, unlike Leo staring down Attila the Hun, this one's a little bit harder to verify. Gregory personally says nothing about this meeting. And since he has something to say about nearly everything, that seems unlikely that he would keep mum about. Gregory can't keep a secret at all. Gregory has to write so many things. Oh my god, does he have the most angsty journal? Well, yeah, don't you? We read his section when he didn't want to be Pope. It is angsty beyond belief. I just didn't realize that. I just thought maybe he had, like, letters. Like, you know, sometimes you just write a little thing and, like, it's over. Like, I didn't want to be Pope. I didn't realize it was, like, an entire journal. Oh my gosh, he wrote... We're going to do an entire bonus episode on all of the things that Gregory wrote. Oh, boy. There's so many. I think I didn't realize, like, the the amount. Like, cool, I would write, like, an angry thing if someone forced me to be Pope. It would be cathartic in a way. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I didn't realize that that is just what he does. Oh, yeah. All day, every day. He doesn't eat and he writes angst. He writes angst and theology and everything else. He is always writing. And we're actually going to get into uh, some of that in some very interesting detail. Remember when I said he had a lot in common with Pope Fabian? So the fact that he says nothing about going out and meeting the king and convincing him to turn around is is weird, right? So but even if he didn't, the siege does end and Agilulf does leave. And later we see Gregory kind of dryly refer to himself as the paymaster of the Lombards. So it is likely that they had a meeting and it is likely that a big bribe did the trick. But, you know, more than ever, getting the Lombards to leave gave Gregory the hope that a lasting peace might be achieved. Especially since he knew that Agilulf's queen, Theodolinda, was a Catholic. So Gregory decides he's going to begin to write to her, and hoping that with her influence, Rome and the Lombards could come to an accord, the invasions could be ended, without the Exarch again. Why do they keep leaving him out? Because he's useless, and then he came for a visit, and he brought his soldiers, and then he just decided to take off with them, yeah. What does he do on his off days? Does he go eat grapes? What's he doing? That is the entirety of his life. He goes and eats grapes, and when... When anywhere in Italy goes, help, he goes, mm, I don't have enough money or soldiers for that. Sorry. Because he's uh, eating all these grapes. I can't hear you. I have too many grapes. <laughs> I listened to a podcast about hot grapes today. Hot? Ew. <laughs> no. Not cooking grapes. Microwaving them. Hot the grapes. <laughs> what? <laughs> This episode is a barrel full of monkeys because what the hell? Who? Why would you microwave a grape? What are you hoping to accomplish? A hot grape, clearly. Well, that is what 
the Exarch is now trying to do. He is in his palace before the invention of the microwave trying to figure out how to get hot grapes. That's, that's what he does on his off day. And then someone's like, there's an invasion. And he just is like, fine. And he goes there for a day. And he's like, I'm really craving those hot grapes. And then he goes home. He comes home. And this time when he comes home, he gets a message. And the message says, hey, so remember when the Pope made private dealings with the Lombards? He, he's doing that again. And this time, the Exarch takes this quite personally. And he decides that he is going to tattle all the way to Emperor Maurice, who was furious with Gregory for going behind their backs. So he writes the Pope a letter. And although we no longer have this letter from the Emperor, based on the context clues, it is apparently insanely hostile and threatening and calls the Pope, the equivalent in as many words, calls him a traitor and a fool. We don't have the letter, but we can tell that this is what it says. What we do have, though, is the Pope's answer to this letter, which is very blunt and direct, laying out exactly why the piece made sense and making the Exarch look like an absolute idiot for not pursuing it in the first place. So even though the Emperor writes him this super hot pissy letter, Gregory just turns around and is like, no, trust me, man, your Exarch's an idiot. He's just making hot grapes. Hot grapes. Who does that? So, needless to say, there was a pretty cold relationship with the Exarch and the Pope until the Exarch died in 596 and was replaced by a man called Callinicius, who was a lot more open to the Pope and actually tried doing things. He was not making hot grapes. And this is when we have a real, official peace talk happening with the Lombards, which leads to a real agreement and real signatures on a treaty in 599. Is it because they agree to give him hot grapes? No, he's like, that. this doesn't make any sense, and we will go to war if you become a hot grape man. <laughs> Stop wasting your time, you don't even have microwaves. They just, they just want peace, and they have peace. But it only lasts for about two years until 601 when Callinicius made an aggressive military push that broke the peace temporarily. But he gets recalled for his actions and then replaced by another exarch who, with Gregory, was able to secure a more lasting peace. And, as another point, through Theodolinda's influence and Gregory's encouragement, Agalulf was eventually baptized and converted to Catholicism, which makes Catholics increasingly welcome in the Lombard kingdom. Good, because those Aryan barbarians had been quite awful for some time. They've been causing a ruckus. So now not only were the Lombards not an immediate threat to the safety of Rome, but Catholicism is going to spread by the king's example. And before we move on, what we really need to take away from this is the significance for the new roles that the Pope has taken on here, because he's not just a spiritual leader in this moment. He is the only secular authority and the only diplomat. He's 
appointing people. He's funding war efforts and defenses. He's sending battle instructions, and he's negotiating peace treaties. This is literally more temporal power and authority than we have ever seen a pope have by this point in the papacy. So Seculari in factum. It's already in the bag, and we are not even close to done yet, so... (laughs) And while all this was going on, Gregory was, of course, still leading the church, because that's his actual job. Yeah, that's his day job. He doesn't want it to be, though. He was extremely active in Rome, leading processions and preaching sermons at various churches throughout the city, so that he was essentially accessible to the entire congregation of Rome. And his sermons are wildly popular, drawing massive crowds who eagerly listen to the Pope teach scripture in very clear and direct ways. Like, he eloquently draws on anecdotes that intimately connected his flock to, like, a deeper understanding of theology. So he's making it real and understandable for the lay people, and this results in a revitalization for enthusiasm for religion, and, of course, massive, massive popularity for Gregory. And Gregory decided that this is where he wanted to conduct the majority of his papacy. You know, if I'm going to have to do this, I want to do it with the people, for the people. Like, he is not really going to do a lot of the high-minded things because he only has one synod during his entire pontificate. It's at St. Peter's in 595, where he validates the liturgical reforms that we're going to come to in time and consolidates bishoprics that have been hit the hardest by Lombards to ensure that ecclesiastical support was there where it was needed. He also established colleges for rectors so that monks could act as estate managers and help maintain the general concerns of justice in the communities and fill vacancies and hold local synods and provide maintenance for churches and monasteries. They could enforce ecclesiastical discipline and correct local bishops. He's kind of delegating, but he's also putting people in positions that would allow the wider church to do what it needs to do. He's like, look, you all go do this, and I'm going to be all about pastoralism with the people. So he's, you know... He's done with the rest of the world. He's just going to get in there, in the nitty-gritty. And one effect of this incredible popularity is that while Gregory is Pope, there is an insane amount of donations that come into the church at this time. The fact that Gregory had converted his familial estates into monasteries and properties that supported the church was a huge point of inspiration, and he calls for other people to follow his model. And as a result, we have other wealthy Romans doing just that, especially when they thought that funding the church in this way would ease their own burdens of sin. This is where we start to see this idea. Donate to the church. Make yourself look good. It's going to be really, really good when you need to get to heaven. In the time that Gregory was pope, Varying estimates suggest that the church came into about 1,300 to 1,800 
square miles of land. Not all in one area, of course, because this is being donated from people, but they now have about 1,800 square miles in places like Rome, Campania, Africa, Sicily, and Sardinia. So they just have all of this land to now support the church. And of course, remember, Gregory has this civil service background, so he turns out to be wicked talented with his financial planning and estate management. So he takes all of these properties and uses them to grow and then sell food and then raise funds for the church, which resulted in an annual income of over a million dollars a year. Remember when everyone was starving and the whole world didn't have two, two denarii to rub together? Yeah, where'd the million dollars come from? Well, he got all this donated property and he put it to good use. He grew food. He then sold the food. He then gave the food where he could. He, you know, set people up with land. We're talking massive sums of money here. He's not Jeff Bezosing it. Exactly. He is he is literally putting every dime that he personally has and every dime that is donated to the church directly into an actual project. Socialism. <laughs> oh yes. This is the polar opposite of where the church and where Rome has been for a while, right? So this is this is huge. This is a huge transition. And this played right into Gregory's paradigm of what the Pope should be. He starts thinking, oh, if I'm going to be Pope, I am going to define what a Pope should be. And that is not the high and mighty, but the, and, and, and pay attention because here's a big one, the servant of the servants of God. He is the first Pope to use this title for the Pope and start the tradition, which is still a title that the Pope holds today. So remember in episode two, when we did all of the Pope's titles? Servant of the servants of God is usually the one it ends on, so that you hear that and remember it, because it's a big deal. He's the one who starts this all. He talks about holiness being in humility. And according to Gregory, and with regard to the income of the church, he isn't looking to make the church worldly and wealthy. He is going to use these riches to give alms. And this is, again, something we've talked a little bit about alms, but we haven't really stopped and had a look at this. So alms is different than donations because alms serve no other personal purpose other than to relieve the distress of the poor Whereas a donation may have other purposes attached, like relieving guilt, receiving something in return, setting a foundation, something like that. And so Gregory is making alms, and the service to the poor is the primary function of his papacy. And he even shifts an entire ecclesiastical role for this express purpose. And this is what the deacons become all about. Because we've had deacons in the church, and they've just kind of been there. They're not quite priests. They're always doing something. It's never really 100% clear what precisely their prime directive is, right? During Gregory's time, the church is absolutely flush with deacons, and so 
their previous role that they did have of, like, assisting a bishop wasn't enough to fill all of the time and purpose of a deacon proportionate to how many deacons there actually are. But, of course, there's this huge need for service to the poor because everyone's starving and people are dying and everything's really, really terrible. So Gregory wanted to shift them away from basically a sacramental function straight into this very real and very large need. So he goes ahead and he assigns at least one deacon from every church in Rome to specifically be the almsgiver to the poor and to go forth and serve God by serving others and to basically be the person that the poor come to for assistance. And this is where that huge influx of cash to the church was so useful. Mm -hmm. Gregory funneled heaps and heaps and heaps of money and land into giving to the poor and ordered an entire ecclesiastical order to make giving to the poor their prime duty. And, you know, as we've discussed, almost the entire city of Rome fits into that category of being destitute. Families ravaged by war and famine and plague and disease, refugees coming from all over due to the Lombard invasion. And if that's not bad enough, while all this is happening, another famine hits in 590. So he's like, I am going to get Rome back on its feet. We're going to get starving people fed. And then there's another famine. And at that point, Gregory ramps up his efforts even more. Because he's like, no, we are not going to be taken under by this famine this time. So he orders that every single church in Rome was to put its financial and temporal assets to use to relieve the starving and that all of these estates that were growing food for the church to sell for profit now have to immediately ship the food directly to Rome where it is going to be given away to the people for free. And we're talking all sorts of food here, too, right? Like, he has so many properties, and he has all sorts of growing efforts going on. So we're talking meat, and grain, and cheese, and fish, and oils, and wines, and fruit, and vegetables, and so on. Like Hot grapes? Not hot grapes. They're not that luxurious. Remember, he shuns all kinds of luxury. You're right. Hot grapes are too luxurious. So we have an account from John the Deacon's Vita. On the first day of every month, he distributed to the poor in general that part of the church's revenues which was paid in kind. Grain, wine, cheese, vegetables, bacon, meat, fish, and oil were individually doled out, each according to its season, by this head of the Lord's family. Every day he sent out, through the streets and lanes of all the city district, duly appointed messengers with cooked provisions for the sick and infirm. To those of the more delicate sensibilities, he used to send a dish from his own table before he himself started to eat, to be delivered at their doors as a blessing from this Apostle Peter. He's just like, I don't need all this food. I'm going to eat one whole bite. So he's like, oh, I heard that there's this poor starving man who has a sensitive stomach. He can have mine. And the last line of this account says, Thus, absolutely no one was excluded from the kindness of this most compassionate of providers. That says quite a lot about Gregory right there. And this, literally, without exaggeration, very, very straightforwardly saved thousands of people from dying of starvation. Good. I am not exaggerating in the slightest. 
And Gregory, unsurprisingly, held very fast to his convictions to serving as a model for the whole of the church. Not only would he send food from his own table away, he would refuse to eat for the day until all of his clerics had returned from serving food to the poor. Because he doesn't like to eat anyway, so he's just like, I'm not going to eat until all of the work is done in the city. And any time that he did eat, like if he was going to actually sit down and break his fast, he insisted that he host a whole table of poor people to dine with him. So he sends his dishes away to the needy. He also has them come and eat with him. Gregory dedicated himself to the church so wholly to this concept of charity and feeding everyone and taking care of everyone that the millions of dollars that the church was bringing in every year will be entirely spent up by the end of his papacy. Like every dollar that he makes goes straight into all of these efforts. So by the time that he will die, a great deal of property has been liquidated to fund the ongoing charity and every dollar will be spent. This is a whole new level of service. Uh -huh. The only other thing in this time that received funds from the church was what we've already discussed, which is defending the city and bribing the Lombards. So he's spending money on absolutely nothing else. You can see why he's so beloved in the city, right? He is saving thousands upon thousands of people. So many. Now that we've seen a little bit through what we've already discussed about the papacy's relationship with the empire at this point, we're going to stop and just take a little bit of a harder look to examine Gregory's view about the role of the empire and how some of his relationships played out in reference to the Eastern Church. First off, it seems by all accounts that Gregory had the utmost respect for the emperor, even when the emperor issued laws or edicts that were inconvenient to the church or completely ignored the West's persistent cries for help against the Lombards. And this is because Gregory viewed the emperor as an essential representation of God in secular matters. And this is important, because in his view, the papacy and the empire together formed a united commonwealth of holy Christianity. He believed that the emperor would defer to the church in spiritual matters, and the church would defer to the emperor in temporal matters, as both the emperor and the pope were respectively supreme within their own purview of governance. Right, this is, this is kind of trying to separate these ideas of church and state. And it's an idealized view, of course, one that never plays out so simply in practicality. But what it does mean is that Gregory wasn't at direct odds with the Byzantines in some sort of power struggle. To this end, we kind of see an unusual paradox with Gregory that if the emperor passed an edict that the pope didn't agree with, the pope would still follow it and carry out the edict, but he would also, because he's Gregory, loudly and repeatedly complain and protest to the emperor in an attempt to change his mind. As he put it himself, quote, I have thus done my duty on both sides. I have obeyed the emperor and yet have not restrained what ought to be said on God's behalf. So you know that he was, you know, following the law, but going, oh, this is a terrible law, emperor. Why are you doing this? This is the wrong thing. You know this is the wrong thing, right? I mean, I've still done it, but you know. 
this is bad. So we see that it meant that as a respectful equal, Gregory had no fear in addressing the emperor directly and, and very bluntly. However, for all the respect he had for the emperor, he did very much see himself as supreme above the exarch, which is why he most easily lost his patience with the exarch of Ravenna, as we've seen. But again, where Gregory repeatedly finds himself getting into conflict is with the Eastern Church. Remember when we talked last week about Pope Pelagius II disputing the Patriarch of Constantinople using the term ecumenical patriarch? Yes. This is a conflict that Gregory picks up as well. I mean, we don't really see Gregory wildly professing the primacy of the Pope or preaching apostolic succession throughout the rest of his pontificate. But this is where it becomes a sticking point. And he argues that the use of the title implied that Constantinople was equal with the Apostolic See, but, quote, who can doubt that it is subject to the Apostolic See? Why, both our most religious lord, the emperor, and our brother, the bishop of Constantinople, continually acknowledge it. So he's saying, look, this title is not going to work for you because it implies that we are the same. And you and I, and the Emperor, and I, and you, we all know that I am the Supreme here. And Gregory also feared that if the two seas were to be viewed as equal, that this would further diminish the prestige of Rome, which would leave Rome no chance at ever getting any attention or assistance from Constantinople. And on top of all of that, Adding titles to bishops along the lines of ecumenical patriarch flies in the face of Gregory's desired idea of the servants of servants of God, the ecclesiastical leaders, right? Like he wants them to be, to be humble and to be an ecumenical patriarch is prideful. And he saw that it would only bring about devastation for the church. And so Gregory, like his predecessor, actively protest the use of this this the use of this title in Constantinople which unfortunately fell on willfully deaf ears and this will be a source of constant tension and protests and then ignoring of protests and it will only continue to exacerbate the divide between east and west so out of the east and onto the wider church gregory had an amazing influence in rome and he found it hard to have a positive and authoritative relationship with the Eastern Church. And how he fared with the wider church seems to be a hodgepodge in the middle. It seems like with Gregory that the closer the geographic proximity, the more success he had. But that's not going to stop him from making efforts with the whole of it. So we're going to just briefly look at some of his wider reach because he does make the effort. In Italy, while making peace with the Lombards, Gregory tried to encourage conversions wherever he could. And we know that he was successful with the Lombard king, so we can assume that there was some other moderate success as a result of that. In Ravenna, despite his less than comfortable connection with the Exarch, Gregory was able to extend some papal primacy due to the Bishop of Milan. The Bishop of Milan had ecclesiastical jurisdiction over Ravenna, but the Lombard violence had forced him to retreat to Genoa. 
And remember that Milan had only very, very recently returned to communion with the Orthodox Church because it had been involved in that schism due to the three chapters controversy until Pope Pelagius II. So Gregory knows that this is a tenuous tie anyways, and he reaches out to the Bishop of Milan, who is John, and reiterates that he has the right to confirm the Bishop of Milan slash Ravenna, but John had been elected while the church was in schism. So you know at this point, when you suddenly get a letter from your boss saying, hey, you were hired when you didn't work for this company. And it's my job to hire you. So you know that John's going, oh, sh like, this isn't going to work out well for me. But Gregory decides to confirm his election and legitimize his position as bishop, which builds a stronger bond between bishop and pope and sorts the whole thing out. Speaking of the three-chapter schism, Gregory also tried to make headway with Aquileia, which was still in schism under Bishop Seferinus. So the Pope sent out one of his appointed tribunes with some troops to the bishop in an attempt to summon Severinus to a synod in Rome and put an end to the schism once and for all. Look, you guys are the only holdouts in this three chapters thing. Let's just put an end to it. But the Aquileans and the small Istrian islands in communion with them stayed firm and went to the emperor and basically said, hey, look, if the Pope keeps pushing us, we're going to go and make some alliance with the Franks. And wouldn't that be convenient to give them a nice place to garrison? Oh. So the emperor didn't like the sound of that at all and ordered Gregory to stop and back off. Hey, leave them alone. They're going to go to the sausages. The hot dogs. The hot dogs. So he does. He does back off until the Emperor Maurice died. And then he pressed the new Emperor to intervene, because he's like, hey, we still have a schism here, help me figure it out. Now in Spain, Gregory bestowed a pallium on Leander, the Bishop of Sevilla. And in Sicily, Gregory appointed a papal vicar, who, remember, is the direct representative for a pope in the region. In Francia, Gregory made a similar connection to that he had with Theodolinda with Brunhild, who is the Catholic Frankish queen. Do you like that name? Brunhild? That is what I called my Fable 2 character after she got very buff. So now with Brunhild and her influence, he influenced new simony reforms in the Frankish churches. Good relationship there. In Sardinia, he was forced to intervene when Januarius, the Bishop of Cagliari, who most sources call aged and half-witted, had appointed some lay people to manage the estates of the Sardinian church, which had basically ended up to a lot of theft and chaos. So he got a very strongly worded letter. And unfortunately, in terms of his wider outreach, we're going to end a little bit on a failure, because in Africa, Gregory had come into some conflict with the African Donatist, who still oppose the Pope and remain in schism because of three chapters and everything else. And like with Aquileia, he had tried to refer the matter unto a secular authority so that they could go in and suppress the heresy. But his requests were ignored, and edicts from Carthage to suppress the heresy were also ignored. And so it was another situation where Gregory protested and complained, 
and then had to let it go. But now I want to circle back to that meeting that Gregory had with the Angle Boys, where he made all those bad dad puns. Yeah, yeah, those boys who he maybe bought or just talked to. Hey, <laughs> So remember how inspired he was when he met them to, like, just go to Britain immediately and convert all their people? Well, now that he's Pope, no one was going to be able to stop him from getting that done. They're not going to be able to be like, hey, no, you can't leave the city and go on this missions trip because now he can send whoever the heck he wants. Because he's not going to be able to go himself, but he could still initiate a mission. And since this mission will be known as the quote unquote Gregorian mission, he certainly gets to keep the credit. So for this mission in 597, Gregory sent a man who would come to be known as St. Augustine of Canterbury. Not to be confused with St. Augustine of Hippo, who we've already encountered in this show. So, St. Augustine, not that St. Augustine. This Augustine is the Apostle of the English, and he was the prior of St. Andrew's, which was the monastery that Gregory had established in his old home, and had succeeded Gregory in running the monastery when Gregory became Pope. And for the sake of clarity, this is not the first time that we're talking about Britain in this podcast. So there was Christianity in Britain before this time. We talked about conversions happening in Britain all the way back in Eleutherius' episode, which is episode 15, all the way back in the second century. And even then, that might not have been its first appearance. However, what's happening now in Britain, it was somewhat reflective of what's been happening through Italy where we see mass migrations bringing in new people and new cultures and new, or at least in this case, old religions. Because for Britain, this is the Anglo-Saxons, right? This is migrating through northern Germany into Britain and bringing paganism with them. So we're not talking Aryan barbarians, we're talking pagan barbarians. A whole different type of barbarian. Just add them to the list. Got some metalheads coming down. All of their titles are in that terrible font that looks like twigs were just thrown on the ground. Like a runic font? Oh my god, have you not seen the twig font? Maybe? I'm trying to imagine what you're getting at, because I'm just seeing, like, sticks make straight lines, like Nordic Futhark kind of thing? Here you go. This better be... Better than hot grapes. <laughs> and there's... Oh! They all look like twigs. Like a pile is, of yeah. twigs. This is like the melty super metal font. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. I never thought about it as twigs before, but... Yeah, okay. I, I get you. I like how the one in the middle is just like balloon <laughs> rainbow font for no reason. I don't know who Party Cannon is, but <laughs> I would hang out with them. They definitely uh, do not fit in with their surroundings. They do not. So St. Augustine and the missionaries were sent to where the Anglo-Saxons had settled, which is primarily in Kent, where King Ethelbert was more receptive to the gospel, seeing that his wife, Bertha, you like that one? Ethelbert and Bertha? Bertha, later St. Bertha, was a Frankish princess and a Christian. Through the influence of his wife and the missionaries, King Ethelbert is converted to Christianity, 
and gave the missionaries permission to preach and establish a bishopric at Canterbury with St. Augustine as the bishop. So for much later reference, this is why the Archbishop of Canterbury is the highest bishop in Britain. This comes back to it being the absolute first. The mission was definitely successful, leaving a lasting legacy of Christianity in Anglo-Saxon England, and would be the seat where future missions would spring from. So this is all wonderfully validating for Gregory and his past meeting with the Angle Boys. And like almost everything in the papacy of Gregory, the Gregorian mission and the efforts of St. Augustine of Canterbury and the conversion of the Anglo-Saxons under King Ethelbert, they could all absolutely be its own episode. We could just look at the missions in Canterbury and Kent. And it might be something that we return to later in time or on Patreon, but this is a colossally long episode, so we're going to mark the Gregorian mission as a success and move on. But the success of his mission was a reflection of Gregory's intense zeal for bringing everyone possible to Orthodox Christianity. It's very clear that he is dedicated to the ending of schisms, the conversion of heresy, and stamping out paganism, where he found it. And this is because he believed this, he, he considered this to be the absolute highest calling of his position, and so he would stop at nothing to bring the gospel up to and including using force when it was required. This is what we've seen, you know, he's, he's willing to suppress heresies and schisms with a little bit of force, and he's willing to bring the gospel where it may not be wanted. However, there is one interesting area in which we see Gregory acting with a surprising amount of clemency. And this is something we haven't really talked about yet, because this is with the Jews. We haven't talked about the Jewish population very much in this show yet. And obviously and unfortunately, this is not going to be the norm for the church to be, you know, kind and gracious with the Jewish population. So when we do see it, it's definitely worth taking note of, even if it is mostly Gregory just reflecting the rule of law. I'm not going to say that he was this great defender of the Jews because he's not. But because of the law, he actually defends the rights of the Jews to worship in synagogue and their right to participate fairly in civil affairs, and he argues against suppression or harassment of Jews, and champions their equal right to protection from fraud. So, I mean, that, that, that is pretty nice. He is, based on the law of the land, he is protecting them and their right to believe in what they believe. I'm saying this with a bit of hesitation because this doesn't make him an outright defender. He still very much put Christianity first, and he thinks that Christians should get some sort of preferential status. Like, if a synagogue was too close to a Christian place of worship where their services could be overheard, he'd push for a synagogue to be moved. And he demanded that Jews shouldn't own Christian slaves, which was a really super convenient loophole for said slaves that if they converted to Christianity, they could petition the Pope to be free. But it is more genial than many of the Popes we're going to deal with in the future. So I feel like it deserves a mention that he actually defends the rule of law for the Jewish population of Rome. 
something that should be said. Let's crack on to the really exciting stuff. Ooh, the really exciting stuff. The liturgical reforms. Oh, God damn it, you tricked me. <laughs> I tricked you. Ah, <laughs> uh, you bitch. So Gregory is responsible for a lot of modification to the liturgy and how it's conducted in a way that has such a lasting legacy that it sets the formula for what is actually practiced today. We should say that giving him sole credit for all of these changes may not be entirely historically accurate and is slightly controversial. So in a lot of cases, we are going to credit him here with modifying and organizing pre-existing practice rather than full-on creation. And we're going to look at this pretty rapid-fire to keep from getting too slogged, so, so don't worry. But this is important. So, one, he founded a school to train church musicians, and he created a scripture schedule for which pieces of the scriptures should be read on specific Sundays throughout the year. Oh, he did that. The liturgical bullshit. He did the liturgical bullshit. Yeah. And with that calendar of which scriptures should be read on which Sunday, he composed new accompanying prayers for most of them. He also instated the stations, which are fasting days, that are still observed in the Roman books of liturgy today. He made many changes to the Mass, including adjusting the position of the Our Father prayer so that it was now read after the Roman canon and before the fraction, which is the breaking of the bread. He also adjusted the canon to include this quote, Wherefore we beseech thee, O Lord, graciously to receive this oblation, which we thy servants and with us thy whole family offer up to thee, dispose our days in thy peace, command that we be saved from eternal damnation and numbered among the flock of thy elect. And he also extends the chant of the Alleluia to any time in the year and not just in the Paschal season between Easter and Pentecost. Blah, 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 blah. We also see Gregory reducing the participatory role of deacons in the Mass, seeing as he wanted them to go and do more with the poor. And in reflection of this, his reforms dictated that deacons were no longer permitted to perform any musical aspect of the Mass except the singing of the Gospel, and subdeacons were no longer permitted to use the chasuble. Yeah, it's like a poncho. Which, for non-Catholics, is the last layer of the ecclesiastical vestment. It's the colored bit that looks most like a cape or like a barber's cover. A poncho. Or a poncho, yes. So these changes that Gregory makes are all reflected in his new sacramentaries, which are the books of the liturgical services used by the priest to conduct Mass. His sacramentaries are referred to as the Sacramentaria Gregoriana and are the most famous and well-known of the sacramentary versions. These versions would also be the most widespread throughout Western Christendom, particularly due to the fact that it was a Gregorian sacramentary that would be sent to Charlemagne, and so he's going to copy it and disseminate it across his territories en masse. And yes, we are coming to Charlemagne soon, can you believe? I mean, I guess. And, and look, because someone's going to wonder why we haven't included it yet, this Pope Gregory is not the Pope Gregory who created the Gregorian chant. 
I was gonna ask, like, an... He, he, he is often credited with developing this style of religious singing, and it does come out of the medieval monastic experience, but this is something that, more historically accurately, should be attributed to a future Pope Gregory, Gregory II. Pope Gregory the Mouthy. Gregory the Mouthy in about 125 years. He already has a nickname, and we haven't even gotten to him. But I have to say, while I was writing this episode, both of my corgis were driving me crazy, like running around and barking at nothing, like lunatics. So I decided I would put on some, like, Gregorian chants to get into the mood to write the rest of this and get in the zone. And as soon as I put it on, they just chilled right out. So maybe future Pope Gregory II, the mouthy, needs to be the patron saint of calming stumpy little demons. I'm just putting it out there now. We have a lot of time before we get to him. And of course, it should surprise no one that Gregory became a prime proponent of monasteries and monastic living, which he felt played a critical role in the spiritual state of the world. Surprise, surprise, surprise. Not at all. Gregory is all about that life, right? He wants more monks and he wants more monasteries. And so he supports the foundation of new monasteries through the proceeds of church funds, converted way more of his family estates into monasteries, and encouraged other wealthy landowners to do the same, and if they couldn't do that, to at least financially support monastic maintenance. Yes. He also wrote numerous and extensive epistles in defense and praise of monastic rules and discipline, particularly their vows of poverty, which should surprise no one. Mm -mm. He was all about that deprivation thing, so. He's not even eating, man. <laughs> he's still not eating. I mean, money? You think he's going to care about money? He's given all that money away, so. He also issued new decrees to adjust and clarify the relationship between this otherwise removed from the world sort of religious order and their bishops as well as their relationship to the papacy, because in the early days of Gregory's papacy, it seems to have been rather common to hear accounts of bishops taking advantage of monasteries that fell within their diocese, and so Gregory was receiving many appeals from monks who are looking for protection against these bishops who are oppressively demanding food and wealth and other services and or harassing them when they are literally trying to be removed from this world. So, obviously, for Gregory, as a monk pope, or a monk who didn't want to be pope and would rather just be a monk, it's very important to him that he upholds the spiritual jurisdiction and the special role of the bishops. But the monks were definitely a special case in his eyes, and so we see the passing of a series of epistles, which today have been collectively gathered together and are called the Privilegia, that outlined where and when monasteries were exempt from standard ecclesiastical hierarchy, and in which matters that they were to come directly to the Pope rather than to the bishop who had jurisdiction over them. And even though he couldn't have known it at the time, these Privilegia documents would be the inception point of what will eventually culminate in all monasteries being under the direct rule of the Pope 
and being exempted from the influence of the bishops. Although that is a long, long way away, he is where that starts. And so the, the Privilegia is Epistles 549, 712, 817, 1211, 1212, and 1213. But we should clarify that Gregory had very little to do with the development of monastic ideals or the habitual day-to-day -day practice of monks, because he sometimes, because he's so into that monk life, gets mistakenly credited for being a really big part of how monks live their life. He just really liked being a monk. He was really about that life. He really promoted that life. He praised its virtues. But he's not the one who developed what it actually looked like, right? At, most of what Gregory followed as a monk and then exhorted as pope were practices that were basically the rule of St. Benedict, who we discussed in Pope Benedict I's episode, episode 64. Like we said then, the rule of Benedict was essentially the guideline foundations of what would become traditional monastic living. So that's already been done. He doesn't have to, to do that part of it. Although not every aspect of monastic living as we would think of it today was introduced at the time. For example, today ecclesiastical work is a large part of what we see monks do particularly orders who focus on serving out in public or in needful areas. But that would be entirely incompatible with monasticism as Gregory and the monks of his day saw it, because they're, again, their role is to be wholly separated, not involving preaching, not involving sacraments, or any involvement with the lay population whatsoever. Remember, we are going to see a rise of anchorites and stylites here. <laughs> They don't want to be involved with people. There are only two things in terms of actual structure within the monasteries that Gregory actually had a say in. One was that he set a minimum age for a nun to become an abbess, which was 60. That's so old. It is so old, but, you know, it kind of eliminates the whole having children dilemma, so makes sense. I guess, yeah menopause will get you. Menopause will get you and then you can be an abbess and it'll all work out. <laughs> and the second is that he extended the minimum time that a novitiate had to serve before taking permanent orders. And that went from one year to two years and some special additional regulation if the novitiate was a slave, right? Because he was like, if you convert to Christianity, you can't be a slave anymore. So he wanted to make sure if you decided that you were a slave and you were going to become a monk, that you were pretty serious about it. Uh, you're making that slavery sound real interesting. I don't know. He understood that there were people who were going to say, I'm a Christian now, so they could be free. Oh, so then they could leave. And yeah. And so he's just making sure that the people who are coming into the monasteries are genuine, which is, it's, it's all awful because, I mean, wouldn't you say anything to not be a slave? Yeah. I mean, I'd rather be a monk than a slave. I'm just saying. So maybe be less to people, but hey. And as we near the end of this behemoth of a pontificate, we're going to wrap up with a look at his literary and physical works. Because besides the foundation of the Monastery of St. Andrews, which is now San Gregorio Magno Alcielo, and the various personal estates that he converted or convinced people to convert, 
He also built a hospital on the Kalian Hill next to St. Andrews, and its primary purpose was to feed the poor dinner out of his personal expense rather than out of church funds, which is a nice thing to do because he likes that. It was probably some real bad food, though. He hates food. Well, he would actually feed people from his own table if they were, like, digestively sensitive. So he was probably giving people much better food than he had, so. Mashed potatoes. So many mashed cats. Now, as far as the expansive depth of his written work, that could literally be a whole other podcast. In fact, that's exactly what we're going to do, because if we included the acknowledgement of all of Gregory's writings in this insanely long episode, um, we'd take at least another half an hour just to skim it. So, not going to do that. But the works are important enough, and he is more prolific in the literary works that he leaves behind than any other pope we've covered, including Pope Leo, so... As a bonus episode, we are going to release a short exploration of his writings separately so that they can be appreciated. All we need to know for this episode, other than the writings we've already mentioned, is that there's enough to make a whole bonus episode. There you go. But we're moving on to the end. Although we know that Gregory had never been a healthy man, the last bit of his life was rough like really rough how much rougher can you get well he was known to have gout yeah i mean he already had that he had gout but now he has arthritis that's old people stuff whatever conditions had been caused by his fasting and a whole bunch of conditions that he describes that we can't medically identify Ooh. Wendy J. Reardon also suggested that he ate nothing but cabbages, which might explain a few <laughs> Boy, he's got some vitamin deficiencies is what he's got. Either way, we know that things were very, very brutal for him, and he actually tells us so in his own words in a letter that he wrote to Marianus, who is the Bishop of Arabia. I will quote how Gregory feels about his current physical condition. Bad. Feels bad, bro. <laughs> It just says, feels bad, bro. It is now a long time since I have had the strength to rise from my bed. For at one time, the pain of gout tortures me, and at another, a fire of what kind I do not know spreads itself with pain through my whole body. Usually at one and the same time, a painful burning heat afflicts me, both body and mind fail me. I am unable to count on how many other great distresses of illnesses are visited upon me in addition to those I have mentioned. In a few words, however, I can say that the infection of a poisonous humor drinks me up to such an extent that it is a punishment for me to live, and I look longingly for death, which I believe is the only thing which can provide a cure of my groans. He's not doing well. He is doing so poorly. And so he dies on March 12th Thank of 604. God. Yeah, we're, we're there. And he was buried the same day in the portico of Old St. Peter's, and his successor composed his epitaph. We don't have the whole thing, but we have an extensive fragment still preserved in the Vatican grottos, which are the tombs and chapels. So I'm going to read that for you. It says, Oh, earth, receive these remains taken from the body of God who gave it life. May you return them when God gives them life again, 
Now his spirit is making for the stars. The powers of death will not harm him at all, since for him death is rather the very road to the next life. Enclosed in this sepulchre is the body of the supreme pontiff who always and everywhere lived in incalculable goodness. He overcame hunger with feasts, cold with clothing, and protected souls from the enemy with holy admonitions. He taught by speaking mystical words and by using his actions as examples. He converted the angles to Christ with the help of godliness, increasing the hosts of the faith by addition of a new nation. This was your toil, this was your zeal, this was your concern, O shepherd, you did it so that you might offer many gains to the flock. And having become God's consul by these triumphs, rejoice, for now you hold the reward of your works forever. But with the destruction of old St. Peter's, his remains are not going to stay put. In 826, a relic of Gregory was taken to Soissons in France, and then the remainder of his body has been moved and removed so many times into differing vessels and new locations during the demolition of Old St. Peter's in 1605. It wasn't until January 8th of 1606 that his remains, along with the head of St. Andrew, were placed in a new cypress coffin and interred in a new marble tomb in a new altar where he remains today, and I'm going to send you a picture of it. All right. Because it is uh, pretty snazzy. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. It's not as pretty as Leo's, but it's definitely, it's definitely nice. It does look like the vines and flowers from Jumanji. Okay, I mean, sure. They're going to attack you. They probably would. I mean, that seems like it would be fitting for him. He might appreciate that. We're here, Fry. He died. It's raiding time. Are you ready? No, I mean, yeah, but no. I don't think it's possible to be ready. So here we go. Papatum infallium. He is the final doctor of the church, which is a rare title reserved for saints that contribute to theology and doctrine. Big point. He's got a PhD in being a little bitch. That's so mean. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> He's got a PhD in churchin'. He does. He's got a PhD in that churchin'. PhD in theology. I feel like Oh my a... God, stop. <laughs> <laughs> He's also considered the touchpoint for the inception of medieval spirituality and the shifting role and perception of the Pope. His approach to public preaching will lead to a mass proliferation of public preaching in the Middle Ages, which is a key feature of the Middle Ages, and he is also casually known as the father of Christian worship throughout the Middle Ages, so they rely on him heavily. His enthusiastic praise and commitment to the monastic life will lead to a mass proliferation of monasteries and monks from here all throughout history. He's heavily venerated for his humility and work with the poor. He founded the concept of the servants of the servants of God, which we can see being very much revitalized in Pope Francis. His influence led to a mass growth of wealth for the church, which he then spent, but spent it exactly where it should go. And he also fiscally managed property so that the money came in as often as it was being spent. He challenged the Bishop of Constantinople on theology and won before he was even Pope. 
He's in large part responsible for the remaining conversion of Britain, and is specifically revered there in Britain as R. Gregory. Not yours, ours. Yeah, he's ours. You know, we had to deal with all those dad puns, he's ours. He made significant liturgical reforms that still stand today. And he's even revered in the Eastern Church as St. Gregory the Dialogist because of his significant dialogues writings. Not all of our popes always get the best reputation in the Eastern Church, especially when we start dealing with the Great Schism, but Gregory supersedes that. So that is just a little summary of it all. What would you like to give him? <laughs> I mean, just the whole, like liturgical calendar to begin with is like a whole bunch of points and then he did mm -hmm. all the revitalization and the like funneling of wealth basically he turned all a bunch of his estates into stuff it's i don't know i'd have to give him a 10 it's definitely a 10 i mean i don't even have to debate it you are so right so he's getting a full 20 fructus prohibitum i saved you a story Oh, I'm so glad. I was wondering. Remember when we talked a little bit about being petty to dead people? Mm -hmm. You kind of made it as an offhand comment, and I was so ready to tell you this story. So Gregory could hold a grudge. While he was still living in the monastery, before he became pope, one of the monks who was under him was dying. And on his deathbed, this monk confessed to Gregory that he had stolen three gold pieces from the monastery. How much is that in American dollars? For them, it was three gold pieces. That would be so many dollars, but, you know, so it's like, it's it's not good. No. But did he steal, like, five dollars, or did he steal, like, three hundred, or did he steal, like, four thousand? In reference to what they had, it was a big deal. Three gold pieces. The monastery wouldn't have had so many gold pieces. So let's say it's like 3% of the wealth of the monastery. It's still pretty significant. But it is three pieces of something. That's what he has taken. Remember that, like, Pope Vigilius got like 700 gold pieces to go back to Rome and basically make sure that Silvarius was deposed. Yeah. He he confessed that he stole some gold from the monastery. And Gregory was so angry with the monk that he forbade any visitors to the dying monk so that he would die alone. And when he was dead, it is said that Gregory had his body and the three gold coins dumped into a manure heap, saying, take your money with you to perdition. Rude. Yeah. However, maybe he felt a little bad about this later on because he then funded 30 masses in remembrance for the dead monk <laughs> for the sins on his soul. So he's like, oh, I, I was rash. So it's kind of shitty, literally. Dead pun. <laughs> mm, well, I mean, we can give him a point for that. I also kind of wanted to give him a point because he like ran away, even yeah. though he was like weak. And not eating, he ran into the woods and God had to point him out with his big finger from the sky. And there's a little bit of family scandal, kind of. I mean, it doesn't really have to do with him, but I'm going to tell you about it because remember his oh-so-holy family that we've already talked about? All three of Gregory's aunts and his mother had taken vows and become nuns. But after his two elder aunts had their miraculous vision of Pope Felix III and they had died, 
The youngest aunt apparently left the convent and married a steward of one of the family estates. He's got some good dick. And she's not a nun anymore, so it's kind of scandalous. Funnily enough, I guess when Gregory was told about this, his apparent response was, Many are called, but few are chosen. A little condescending, but not as severe as throwing someone on a manure heap. There's that. He's definitely worth a couple points in Scandal. Yeah, you know, I want to give him like two. One for throwing that man in that poop pile and the other for running away. I I will match you for that and give him a four in Fructus Prohibitum, which I think is more than most people think he will get in this category. Give him an extra one for all those terrible dad puns. Actually, I am going to give him an extra one. I'm going to give him a three because even though I didn't include it, there is a lot of, even though he is full-on dicks out for celibacy, he talks about being plagued with, like, lustful thoughts. So just because yeah. he's such a holy man. He's got a thirst. <laughs> we got to give him a collective extra point for, for that. Just, you know, just because. Seculari impactum. Okay, so his active role with the poor made him one of the most civilly and secularly obeyed popes. So he has a huge impact with the secular population. He appointed secular authorities to take over and defend Naples against the Lombards. He saved thousands of lives by feeding the poor during a famine. Um, he is part of the conversion in Britain and encouraged the conversion of the Lombard king. He prevented Rome from being sacked twice. He appears in, D in Dante's Divine Comedy. This time, we have a pope in paradise instead of in Inferno. He's a source of inspiration for the arts, as we've seen, and there is also a, a composed piece of music from 1925 by Ottorino Respigi called San Gregorio Magno, which is very famous as part of his Vedrate di Chiesa work. Very famous musical piece. He still receives a traditional procession in Zaitan in Malta on his feast day in April, and the students from the school there are called Old Gregorians in reference to Pope Gregory. I'm Old Greg! And there, there's there's more. I mean, there's, there's so much more. So, I mean, it's gotta be a 10 from me. Yeah. He saved thousands of lives. That alone would give him a 10. Yeah, okay. Yes, yes, I will give him a 10 as well. I mean, we're going to see if he's going to come up as a runner for our top score. Fossium Sanctus. For the first time ever, we have a physical description of this Pope man. And this comes from John the Deacon's 9th century Vita of Gregory. So it's not a contemporary description from someone who knew him, but someone who saw the portrait that was made of Gregory that was in the, the monastery that we referenced at the beginning, how we knew what his parents looked like. So I will I will read you a description of this Pope. Are you ready? We don't normally get that. We get it every once in a while. Handful. This is a full paragraph of what this man looked like. His figure was of ordinary height and was well made. <laughs> well made. Well made, you know, and he wasn't starving to death at this point. His face was a happy medium between the length of his father's and the roundness of his mother's face. So that being with a certain roundness, it seemed to be of a very comely length, his beard being like his father's of a rather tawny color and of moderate length. He was rather bald, so in the middle of his forehead he had two small neat curls, twisted towards the right, 
The crown of his head was round and large, his darkish hair being nicely curled and hanging down as far as the middle of his ear. His forehead was very high, his eyebrows long and elevated. His eyes had dark pupils, though not large, were open under full eyelids, his nose from the starting point of his curving eyebrows being thin and straight, broader about the middle, slightly aquiline, and expanded at the nostrils. His mouth was red, lips thick and subdivided. His cheeks were well-shaped, his chin of a comely prominence from the confines of the jaws. His color was swarthy and ruddy, not as it afterwards became unhealthy-looking. Swarthy and ruddy are literally two different spectrums. I mean, are you going to take it up with John the Deacon? I am. Okay. There's a subreddit called Men Writing Women. Oh, yes. And they're all terrible. And this is what? This is clergymen writing other men. And it's just as bad. Oh, it's bad. Yeah. And it's and like, like the lips are thick and subdivided. What does that mean? I think what they're getting at here, though, with his color is that he looks lively and healthy because later he would look like, you know, starving himself to death. Those are two different colors. He wants both. You can't have both. Take it up with John the Deacon. Perhaps I will. Subdivided lips. Why? He opens his mouth like, I don't know, the predator or something. (laughs) The last line says, his expression was kindly. He had beautiful hands with tapering fingers well adapted for writing. His hands come up a lot, so I just had to include that line there better love those hands they talk about this man's hands you know what they say about nice hands <laughs> not I, <gasps> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know i was gonna put you on the spot there <laughs> so i'm gonna send you the picture that we normally rate on because i mean we're gonna have to just with gregory we're gonna have to rate him on a collective of images because there are definitely images that are more famous than this and we did that for leo But this is generally what this man is supposed to have looked like based on that description. (laughs) Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. Let's, um, I know that's where the crack is. The crack in the world is, but does not it look like he's got some magic laser eyes. He's, uh, warging out again. No, this isn't really a warg. This is more like, uh, getting ready to fire my laser glow. It's not a particularly great image of him. But because he is such a well-known and revered pope, he is also one of the most depicted popes in church art. So we actually have a little discussion about iconography to have. And this is because one of the things that's really consistent about depictions of Gregory is that he's usually shown with a dove. Remember when I said he had things in common with Pope Fabian? So I'm going to send you a series of images of Gregory with a dove. Be prepared. Oh, he has lots of them with a dove. That man looks completely different than the others. Oh, they always look so different. But like every single painting, this man is with a dove. Did I send you the one where he looks really concerned about the dove? Yes. Well, like you start at the top and they're they like, okay. And there's, it's kind of, we're getting to varying degrees of Pedro Pascal here. And then suddenly (laughs) it is an old crotchety man who looks nothing like any of the rest of them. No, it is just an old looking man with doves. Always doves. So uh, we're going to rate him. And then I'm going to, I'm going to tell you why doves. He he liked the one where he looks really mad at the dove. 
right? He looks really annoyed about it. It's got the little hat on it like it's the Holy Spirit. It is. <laughs> it's a lot like uh, that article Jay posted earlier with the pigeons in the little cowboy hats. <laughs> but it's the Holy Spirit hat. It is. Maybe, maybe the man in Vegas who's putting cowboy hats on pigeons needs to give them a Holy Spirit halo. So, all right. What would you like to give this collection of images of this man? Oh, maybe, maybe like a, a four? I don't know. They're all so weird. They are weird. Okay, you can give him a four. If I had to vote for, like, doves, it would be much more. I'd give him, like, an eight. Because the doves are doing all sorts of jaunty things. This one's the doves are great. whispering in his ear. We got one that's coming down and looks like it's going to take his hat Another one looks like it's going to just alight in his hood. I will give him a six because I think, you know, there's some good images here. I, there's definitely some stylized images, so I like that. That gives him a 10, which gives him a score of 2.5. So are you ready to hear why doves? Why doves? This is a story recorded by Peter the Deacon in his Vita, accounting a time that Gregory was writing homilies on Ezekiel. So it's time for more Oh boy, two and one. There's more to come. Miracles. In this story, Gregory was dictating his homily to a scribe. But for some reason, perhaps due to Gregory's ill health, in between Gregory and his scribe was a curtain. It was hidden. You couldn't actually see him. And, and the, the scribe started to notice that Gregory would speak for a while. And then he'd go silent before he'd speak again. Like, so he, there were these long, weird silences happening. And he's like, okay, I can't see the man behind the curtain, so I don't understand why these silences are happening. So the scribe got curious, and he peeked behind the curtain. And what he saw was very strange. So sitting on top of Gregory's head was a dove. Do we got a ratatouille situation? Kind of? The dove was bent down and it had its beak inside of Gregory's mouth. <laughs> so when the dove would remove his beak from Gregory's mouth, the Pope would speak, and then the bird would stick his, his beak back into his mouth and he'd stop. So this dove is essentially the Holy Spirit, bird mama regurgitating homily into Gregory so that he could speak. Miracle. Ratatouille situation. The whole time it's been a bird, it's not been Pope Gregory. No wonder he was eating so poorly. He's just eating bird food. The bird's like a french fry. Gurgitated bird food. It's one of the dumbest things I have read for this podcast. <laughs> bad. Oh, it's so bad. If a bird is feeding him, it explains an awful lot mm -hmm. about everything. <laughs> You can't survive on bird diet, sir. No, but he tried. Tempus Pontificus. September 3rd, 590 to March 12th of 604, which is 14 years, giving him a score of 3.5, which is not bad. Considering he doesn't eat. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. Do, 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 do. I bet he's a saint. He is such a saint. His feast day is September 3rd which was the day of his papal consecration rather than his death. 
His feast day used to be on March 12th, on his death day, but after the introduction of reforms to the liturgical calendar by Pope John XXIII, which forbade all full observances of feast days during the Lenten period, they moved Gregory because he was that important he needed a full feast day. We can actually also talk about when he was canonized, because it's pretty much instantly after his death. We don't have that very often. Usually it's much later on that they kind of just get this token sainthood for being an early pope. But he was declared a saint by the people in popular acclamation. So, like, right away. He is a saint from the minute that they put him in the ground. His mother Sylvia, his aunt Pateria, and his paternal aunts Tarsilla and Emiliana also get to be saints. And, of course, his great-great-grandfather, Pope Felix IV, and his potential ancestor, Pope Aegyptus, are all saints as well, so holy family. And yes, he is an official patron saint of something, so he will not be the patron saint of hot grapes or starving yourself to death or bird regurgitation. He is the patron saint of musicians, singers, students, and teachers. But also, we could just add bird regurgitation at the bottom. <laughs> and bad dad puns. But we're not done yet, because Gregory is also credited with more miracles. Oh boy. Miracles. So, uh, more than the appearance of the Archangel Michael, and more than the Holy Spirit bird regurgitation, there are so many miracles which we don't have time to cover but we are going to cover one of the most famous, which occurred at a mass in Rome in 595, which is recounted by Paul the Deacon in his Vita and in the Golden Legend. At this mass, Gregory was administering communion, and a woman in line for communion began to laugh. She just started, like, laughing her guts out, and she says, I've done that in church before. The last time we had somebody laughing in such a serious ceremony, they got murdered. They got <laughs> so murdered. So this woman is just having a time. She's laughing so hard. And when asked what the heck is going on with her, she says that she had helped to prepare the host for the Eucharist this this on this ceremony. And she couldn't believe that they would actually become the body and blood of Christ. She's like, dude, I touched those things. There's no way. And and this really disturbed Gregory, and he stops the communion, and he's like, no, we need to pray for this woman to be enlightened. Oh, boy. So he stops and prays, and in answer to his prayers, he witnesses the host of bread turn manifestedly into flesh and blood in the form of a bleeding finger. No. So his hosts literally became bleeding bits of flesh, and this apparently, when showed to the woman, did cause her to be filled with divine inspiration, and she repented her disbelief. And shown to the woman, this caused her to vomit and never come back to church again. Well, according to the Society of St. Pius X's website, the miraculous hosts, which manifested into fleshy hunks, <laughs> have been preserved and are still venerated at Andex Abbey in Germany, and they still exist. I hate that. Oh, I have a picture of their reliquary for you. Oh, but not pictures of the hunks of meat? You can't, um, see the hunks of meat. How do you know they're in there? I tried so hard How to find them. How do you know they're them. there? 
So uh, there's the reliquary that are in there. You can see the three little capsules for the hunks of flesh. Um, they bring it out and they have it on procession at the Dry Hostin Fest. I bet that smells bad. <laughs> yeah, um, it's it's not a good thing. Here's here's a close up as well of hunks of flesh preserved in a reliquary. Jerky. Jesus jerky. I am also going to send you a a Wikipedia page because there is an entire Wikipedia page devoted just to this miracle. And so there are so many depictions of just this moment where the hosts become hunks of flesh. Is there like a tiny Jesus puppet going, Dumbledore? Why is he saying Dumbledore? No, it just looks like he's doing the shake, like the powder puppet pails. There's lots of these tiny Jesuses that appear in these images. There are so many to look at. I will post it with the show notes because that's the thing you need in your life is all of these depictions of things becoming hunks of flesh. That finally brings us to the end where we can talk about his total score. Do you want to guess kind of what ballpark he might be in? Is he like in the high 50s? He's in the 50s. He is a 52. So that's a pretty good guess. That puts him in second place. He did not unseat Damasus, but he did unseat Peter. He scored 0.5 of a point higher than St. Peter. Ooh, that seems like it's going to be controversial. So there is a question I must ask you, and I am fairly certain I know the answer, but for the sake of the structure, is he popey enough and pizzazzy enough with an impact enough for a papal bull? Look, I'm exhausted after this. We have been talking about this man for like three hours. Yeah, after like three hours. And I mean, let's just give it to him because it's ridiculous if we don't. Yep, exactly. He is one of those popes that was, he's a great. He's one of like two official greats in the whole of the church. He was gonna get it. Here we are. We've wrapped it up. We've done it all. And just to bring us home, we're going to do a couple thank yous. We are going to thank Totalis Rankium, Rex Factor, for always being our inspiration. I need to thank Patronatus on Twitter, who got me John the Deacon's Vita for this episode. Thank you so much. We have two patrons to absolve of their temporal punishments. And that is Cara di Domizio. And Ben Music. So thank you very, very much. Ego te absolvo. And a, a quick shout out as well to the Save the Game podcast, who have been plugging us and shouting out about us. And we appreciate it very much. If you've made it this far, that was this was a long haul. And we are so glad you are still here with us. We have made it through Gregory. And we will say thank you. Thank you for listening. And goodbye. Bye. Oh. <laughs> oh.